This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Akiva Silver of Twisted Tree Farm in Spencer, New York. He joins me to talk about his life and the experiences that led to his book, Trees of Power, from Chelsea Green Publishing. Starting with his beginning as a tracker and forager, we move into his work on getting his farm started and some of his favorite trees. Among those, we dig in deep about chestnuts and hickories. We also touch on what we mean by the word farm, what he had to do to create his family's own farm income on three quarters of an acre, how foraging and tending the land extends the space we might consider our farm, and how we can harvest more food than we can imagine by going to those places and spaces where others might not consider looking. Akiva also shares the joy of propagation and the many ways we can do this, from cuttings to grafting to layering, and how we can generally diversify our plant genetics by growing out our selection from seeds. Whether you're growing, planting, or just enjoy trees, there's a lot to learn from this interview. Enjoy the time with Akiva, and I'll join you again after. Then, Akiva, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to your work at Twisted Tree Farm, and then we can take the conversation from there? Sure. I grew up just in the suburbs in Rochester, regular middle-class life, and I wasn't really exposed to a lot of nature. And as I got older, I traveled around a lot, and there was one point in my early, I think I was maybe like 20 or 21, I read some books by a guy named Tom Brown Jr. These stories were just incredible. He was a kid. He met an Apache elder. He was living in New Jersey, but he met this Apache somehow. And he wound up spending his life dedicated to wilderness survival, but it was like beyond survival. It was like he would go naked into the wilderness, literally, and just create his whole life from there and he was so in tune with everything he he would make his own clothes make his, get, gather his own food everything he would make stone tools and the way he described it was these beautiful adventures but they also had this spiritual undertone and the books were so inspiring to me i was like i want to do that and i got to the end of the book and it actually said if you would like to learn more tom has a school and so i wrote them a letter and this is back when people wrote letters and I signed up for the course and I went to his classes and then that just got me started on that path. And I became really obsessed with living close to the earth for years and studying primitive skills. It was on one particular camping trip. I had come from Rochester. I was in Rochester and I was living at this house next to this park. And I used to go into the park every day and meditate in the morning and then I'd meditate in the evening and throughout the day I would just track and hunt and trap and I spent all my days like all my time pretty much in the little forested areas between the suburbs and I would see so many animals see tons of birds mink foxes raccoons coyotes so many deer and in the morning this was around early May so like in the mornings the birds would erupt in this dawn chorus and it was just so much sound and so anyways i was staying in rochester doing all this work and then uh, me and my friend mark we decided to go on a camping trip into this wilderness area in north central pennsylvania which if people don't know it's is actually incredibly rural it's beyond rural it's wilderness areas and but way back in the wilderness and we were going to live a whole stone age life for the whole summer was our plan and when i got out there i continued my normal routine of 
meditation in the morning and meditation in the evening and just spend the whole day tracking and trapping and hunting. And it was incredible how quiet the forest was there. It was striking. Like I would sit in the morning and I might hear like one bird call out and I'd walk around and there was almost no animal sign except for if you go down to the edge of this river. It, it was just such a huge contrast. Here I was in this enormous wilderness area, but there was way more birds and animals in the suburbs. And I just couldn't wrap my head around that because I was coming from this mindset that nature is perfect and people are messed up and people destroy nature. I couldn't really understand why there was so little animals in this area and so few birds. And it slowly started to dawn on me that like the disturbances that people had created, all the edge habitat people had created, all the different types of plantings, gardens, and just by even destroying areas, by people like bulldozing pathways and just changing things, gravel pits, stuff like that. It had created such a diversity. There was more animals there. And so that was like the beginning for me of when I started to think maybe maybe people can actually have a positive impact on the world. Like maybe we can actually increase wildlife populations. And then I say, what if we're doing it by accident in Rochester? Maybe what, what would it look like if we tried to do it on purpose? And once I started thinking about that, uh, tree planting became like the most exciting thing to me. I started to get almost high off the idea of planting an apple tree somewhere or mulberry, knowing that this tree is going to grow up and it's going to feed all these creatures. And I got addicted to tree planting. And and my wife, we bought a piece of land in Spencer, which is like a couple hours south of Rochester near the PA border. And I just started planting trees like there's no tomorrow. And then I started the nursery so that I wouldn't have to leave the house to work somewhere else. And I could just grow trees at home. And that's what I've been doing since then. When did you make that transition to the farm and growing trees? We bought the property like 10 years ago, and then I started the nursery. The nursery was like a hobby before that. The nursery's been a hobby for about a dozen years, maybe 13 years. And then I started, like legally, started selling trees six years ago, no, seven years ago. And, and then it became like a full-time operation where I didn't have to work anywhere else maybe four years ago. And from the numbers, you're growing like tens of thousands of trees every year with your nursery business, right? Yeah, it sounds like a lot, but it's not that hard. And a lot of the trees are pretty small. I grow out like thousands of seedlings. And yeah, I think we grow about 20,000 trees a year at this point. And I'm sure I could do more. I have three kids and it's enough. It's mostly, it's easy to grow them. It's harder to send all the orders out. And it's from that work and your years on the farm that led you to write your book, Trees of Power, 10 Essential Arboreal Allies? Yeah. Yeah, the book's more than just growing trees because a big part of my life is foraging. So Sam Thayer, he actually wrote the forward for the book. It was like a huge honor to me. I just couldn't believe that he wanted to do that. But he's a big hero of mine. But foraging was always like my passion because there's two parts like you can't just be planting trees and just giving there's this other side of it which is the harvesting of these crops and using all this product so like i love to use wood for tons of stuff i like to carve I like to build sheds I like to make all kinds of stuff 
So a lot of the book is also about that side of me. So half the book is about all the growing and the propagation and the planting and cultivating. And then the other side of the book is really about using these gifts that are just raining down all around us. Like hickories, for example, I grow very few hickory trees, but I gather thousands of pounds of hickory nuts every fall because they're so abundant all around us. And that was one of the things that I liked about your book and the layout is that you focused on 10 particular trees. And I was wondering if you could speak some to why you chose those ones in particular. Yeah, it's funny. Everybody keeps asking me that question. I actually want to write another book because there's so many trees. So it's not that these 10 are the 10 that everyone should be working with. It's just that I had so much to say about each tree that if I did more than 10 trees, the book would be like too long. It would just be ridiculous. And there was no end point. There's a hundred trees I could easily write about that I love and use and interact with. And we live in the Northeast. You know, this this part of the world is the second most diverse temperate forest in the world. And in the most diverse temperate forest is a place in Western China, but this is the second most. And there's so many different trees to work with here. So I included trees that were just the first ones I felt most inspired while I was writing. And the way I wrote the book, I always wrote articles and people would say, oh, I love your articles. You should write a book someday. And I would just laugh. I'm going to write a book. I have time to do that. But then this last winter, I just sat down to write an article and it just, I just couldn't stop writing. And, and I would just go to bed at night. And as soon as I would lay down, I'd lay down for about 10 seconds and then I'll have to jump back off and be writing. And I couldn't stop. It was like, I would put the kids to bed and I would go write every night. And before I knew it, I just had this whole book come through me. And I didn't like plan, oh, I'm going to write about this tree and that tree. It was all in the moment. I was like, I would sit down to write, calm myself down, be still for a moment and think, what do I want to write about? And it was like, I want to write about ash trees. I really want to write about ash trees. And I would just start writing my ash trees. If I kept going, I would have included so many other trees. So that's what the, I guess, a future book will be. Yeah, just they're just 10 random trees that I thought are really valuable for people in the world. And writing about them just rose naturally as you were working on what was supposed to be an article and just became so much more. Yeah, I would like to say these 10 trees are certain trees, but it's really just, you could really pick any tree and kind of, once you start really looking at it, you can see like how much it contributes to the world. And there's just so much to say about each of them. And it's from a permaculture perspective. A lot of times when I've talked with people about what to bring into a site or location, a lot of times we start with what are trees that are going to be useful for you. In particular, like apples and other fruit trees are usually like front and center to that conversation because they provide food relatively quickly and a return that we can see as opposed to say some of our nut or timber trees which may take a lifetime or more before we get a decent harvest from or are able to use them within our landscape and that's where i like with the 10 that you did wind up working with is that you've given us a little bit of everything that for permaculture practitioners they can find useful from what they might grow for food to things that might help care for them in the land because they provide medicine such as bringing in elderberry or others that are good for restoring the soil or heating our homes. From the trees that you did write about, 
which ones do you see as places for people to start if they're not used to growing trees? Yeah, so I guess I should back up a little. Like the trees that I picked, I did try to make sure that they each represented like a different facet of what trees have to offer us. So some of them are really like a food tree and some of them are like a fuel tree and some are like a timber tree. And that's the other thing. It's like when you say like you go to a site and you think, what are you going to use? Really, like you have to look at the site and sometimes there's already something there and people, they're so eager to plant something that they're like, oh, this stuff's all over. Let's start clearing it out and putting it in. But then I've definitely seen, because I used to do a lot of consulting and landscaping, and I've definitely seen people do this where they'll be clearing stuff and they can't even identify half of it. And you don't even know what you're cutting. And that just horrified me. I'm in touch with a lot of people in the permaculture community, and I think it's like really beautiful work. And at the same time, I feel like we need to keep looking at what is already growing there what is already there. And sometimes, like some of the trees I wrote about in the book, like beech trees, a lot of people will have a stand of beech on their property, but they don't use it for anything. And so the book is, it's not just like, what do we add to the land that's super valuable, but what's already there that we can already use. And so some of the stuff, it's like, it's almost like people like to make things harder than they have to be sometimes. And if you look at, hickory trees and you read about hickory so many people are like i want to grow hickories i'm like that's awesome i think that's a wonderful thing that people are going to plant more hickories and at the same time they probably drove by 20 million pounds of hickories that fell on the ground in the fall and they didn't pick up a single nut so it's kind of there's using it but there's also planting it and then there's also like just recognizing what's already there like sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel so to speak yeah, and I think that that speaks to, within the permaculture context, that idea of doing a long-term site assessment, getting to spend time in the land, know what's there, learn to identify the trees and plants that are available so that we can work with what we already find, as opposed to just tearing it out and starting fresh. And those plants are also indicators of what wants to be there. So if you have beach, for example, then you obviously have a site where chestnut will be really happy, or oaks, or... They all these plants they have a story, they have a message if we understand more about their ecology and habits and stuff like that. And mentioning chestnuts, are you using a hybrid chestnut, a Chinese, or have you been trying to grow some of the resistant American chestnuts that have been developed in the last few years? All of them. I'm like I've of all the trees that I've worked with, the hickories and chestnuts have probably been the most exciting to me. And chestnuts I got very obsessed with chestnuts for several years. And the more I've learned about chestnuts, the more I believe we need to get as much different genetics in the mix as possible, as much as possible. There, there's so many different species of chestnut from around the world, and they each kind of have their own traits, and positive and negative traits. And the more genetic diversity we can bring in, the more resilience that the chestnuts will have. And because of the blight that wiped out so much, and there's still a ton of blight pressure where I live, but there's other diseases. There's Asian chestnut gall wasp, there's phytophthora root rot, there's tons of things that can attack chestnuts. So the more diversity we can cultivate, the better. And the main trees I'm growing are these hybrid chestnuts, and they, there's like a long story behind them, but 
they really come from the work of this guy, Arthur Graves. And what he did was he was this young man in Connecticut around the time of the blight hit. And in the 1920s was when he was really experiencing this. And he was watching all his chestnut forests around him die. And his response was, we just need to plant as many chestnuts as we can from every different species from around the world and then hybridize them. And so chestnuts naturally hybridize. If you have an American chestnut and a Chinese chestnut and they're in the same area, then the pollen will easily mix and you'll get a hybrid. So anyways, Arthur Graves, he planted all these different species of chestnut from around the world and then he would cross them and then he would cross the crosses and he planted like 20,000 trees about and he planted them out in these forests that he created they still exist today they're in connecticut and people have actually continued his breeding program and he was trying to find a tree that could survive in our forest and replace the american chestnut as a true timber tree but uh what he did along the way was he just accidentally found all these other things he just found like tons of chestnuts that were very disease resistant and produced tons and tons of big beautiful nuts and there's so much diversity in his plantings. So a lot of his plantings, the trees are called JCA crosses, Japanese Chinese American crosses. And they're super resilient trees that really work well as far as like cold hardiness and blight resistance. It's probably some of the best genetics you can get for my area, which we have a lot of blight around here. And so anyways, Arthur Graves planted all these trees and then there's different selections made from his plantings after he died. And this guy Brian who lives down the road from me he started planting chestnuts in the 1970s, and he used a lot of the stuff from Arthur Graves' plantings. And then Brian has furthered that work by planting more and more trees and calling out poor performers or trees that are blight susceptible. And so the trees I work with, for the most part, come from Brian's population, and those are the bulk of the seeds I use. But then I also get seeds from wherever I can. I get a lot of seeds from Empire Chestnut Company in Ohio, and they they have many different strains. They have trees that have been bred for wildlife, like the Seguin chestnut, which is a species from China that produces tons and tons of nuts at a very young age, but they're small. And then I grow chinkapins, which is a type of chestnut that grows as a shrub and makes like a blueberry-sized nut. This is incredibly sweet. And then I grow pure Japanese chestnuts that came from Korea. Chestnut cronata is the species. And they those people in Korea are breeding chestnuts the way we in, have intensively bred apples. And so if you go on the website of the Korean Institute of Forest Genetics, you'll see chestnut trees there. They're like, they're like the size of a peach tree, except they have 150 pounds of nuts on them. It's just ridiculous. The whole tree is just covered. I've never seen anything like it. And the nuts are enormous. And they actually have bred these nuts to have a better shelf life and less prone to mold. So anyways, the short story is I'm planting as many different strains of chestnut as I can. I have plantings that are just for timber, plantings that are just the chinkapin shrubs, plantings that are just mixes of hybrids, Turkey, Ohio, wherever, New York State, wherever I can get them. And it sounds like because of all of this breeding that you're finding chestnuts to fill a wide variety of niches across your farm. Yeah, and uh, I just get excited about just seeing all the different diversity in them and seeing what they do. But yeah, some of them, I'm planting them 
to become a forest. So they're only planted like a couple feet apart and the rows are only like six feet apart and it's going to be a closed canopy forest area. And then others are really widely spaced and they're really spread out for nut production. And then some are just these hedges I build for wildlife. I didn't ask earlier, how many acres is your farm that you're doing all of this development on? We have 20 acres. So doing quite a lot on what would be considered a relatively small farm. Yeah, to me, it's huge. I'm just one person, and I'm pretty far from filling those 20 acres up. I think I have about eight acres planted with trees. It's the two sides of a conversation about what constitutes a farm when we look at the scale of intensity. And one of my instructors in permaculture, Ben Weiss, talked about when he was working on a farm, they were doing one acre intensively by hand, and that was more than enough for him and two other people to work, growing vegetables and fruits and other things. But then when I look at something like the mechanized farms or some of the dairy and cattle farms here where I am in central Pennsylvania, they can run three, four hundred acres and be utilizing what seems like all of that land because it's not as intensive or is using a lot of machinery. Yeah, farm is just the word, right? Like in Cuba, the farms are just, they have raised beds that go for acres and they're just managed by people with hand tools. And then my nursery is actually 100% of our family's income and the nursery is three quarters of an acre. And then the chestnuts are just, I have more than chestnuts planted up on the hill, but like all the trees I've planted up on the hill are really just for the future and for fun. And But as far as, yeah, I don't know what the definition of farm is. To me, it's like you make money growing stuff. It's just words. I don't know. But one of my other instructors in the permaculture realm talked about how in India, like the average size of a farm is only two acres. And you have then millions of these tiny one hectare or less farms that are being run by one person or their family and the impact that has. Or in Southeast Asia, where families are growing the majority of their food on 400 square meters. And really, it is just about how we want to talk about this and think about whether it's like a garden that would be for home production that may cover multiple acres if it's a large family or someone who's really involved or something that could be a small intensive farm. How do we best utilize that space for what our interests are? And then like, where's the space end? Like for me, I spend a lot of time off the farm collecting seeds and nuts and cuttings and stuff. I go all over collecting stuff. And so I don't know, is that farming? Probably not, but I don't know. There's all these discussions. How much food are you making and stuff like that? But I don't know. I don't know if life needs to be that. I think it's pretty awesome if people that just were to utilize the crops of hickory and black walnut that are everywhere and you don't have to measure the acreage for that. It's all people's yards and all along the road and stuff. Going to those spaces where the food is already growing so that we combine farming and foraging to be able to harvest what's there. Yeah. Like, why make things harder than they have to? And it's also foraging. It's like for people that haven't really got experience, it can be great fun. But it can be so much fun. It's hard to explain. But you walk up on a scene and there's just thousands of pounds of food just falling on the ground while you're there. You're picking it up and it's falling all around you. It's, I don't know, it's one of the best, most exciting activities I can think of. Well, was one of my great discoveries was realizing how many shagbark hickories grow here in central Pennsylvania, just along some of the roadways. And once I realized what that bark looked like, 
waiting to see the nuts begin to form and swinging by. And even if I'm just picking up a handful or so, getting to try that wild food that's just readily available all around me. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting with that because if you were to just like, you don't always know how to open the package. You know, there's a present there, but you don't always know how to open the package. And a lot of times people are like, I tried collecting hickories, but man, there's just like tiny bits of nut in there. We couldn't get anything out worth, not worth our time. But there's so many tricks and skills to learn that can make it so much more worthwhile. But but that's the thing. So like foraging often, if you plant a garden, there's like a certain amount of work that goes into cultivating and weeding. And then you like pick whatever you've grown. Let's say you've grown kale or something. And then the preparation is really easy. But some of the wild foods, there's not a lot of prep work to get the food there. But then to actually process it into something you can eat is where the work is. So the work is just in like different places. Recognizing where that work's going to go in and deciding, do we want it on the back end, on the front end, or somewhere in between? Yeah, or do different things, whatever makes you most happy, whatever's most exciting and fun. And with the discussion of hickory, why is that one of the other trees that really calls to you? I don't know. They're just like so incredible. Like I love the the shapes of their branches. If you have seen hickory silhouettes in the winter, and then when you get into the nut, there's just all these avenues. So like the shag bark is just the kernels are so good. So I've been like looking at hickory trees for a while now, and you can find certain trees especially in certain areas. I don't know about your area, but in my area, there's certain trees that'll just have really big nuts that crack out really well. And you can actually sit there and crack out like a quart of nuts. And then there's ones where if you start trying to crack it out, you're never going to get a quart of kernels. It'll take you forever. So then those are the milk ones. So there's the kernel is like one product and the hickory kernels, it's the best nut in the world. It's like unrivaled. So we just eat them by the handful, but then we also make candy with them. It is the best candy I've ever had in my life. So there's one avenue. But then another avenue would be you take all the small nuts and you just turn them into milk and you make hickory milk, which is wonderful, hearty drink. It's better than any nut milk I've ever experienced from the store. And then on the other side, there's the oil, the bitter nut hickory, cryocordiformis. We worked with Sam Thayer and we brought him a bunch of nuts and he pressed them into oil and, you know, with Two days of gathering, he was able to press out for uh, two days of gathering nuts. We got back over seven gallons of oil. And seven gallons of nut oil is incredible. It's actually like a golden color. It tastes like shagbark hickory. So it's phenomenal. So there's these different products. And then the wood of hickory, if you're into woodworking, is just, is there's nothing else like it. It's the most resilient wood ever. I mean, maybe not ever. Osage orange might be, but nothing. But Osage will never grow like a hickory. And so I used to be way into bow making, and I used to make these long bows and recurves and stuff. And hickory is just my favorite wood to work with because it's so forgiving and it's so strong, and has a reputation. Plus, it's like just the name hickory is like there's something about it that you just want to be familiar with that tree. It's like in folklore and nursery rhymes. It's such a great treat to know and to have around. And where I live, it's really abundant. It's like all over the place. Then are you mostly using hickories that you go and forage from, or are you also growing some on your farm? 
I'm growing a few, but mostly I forage for them. I've definitely planted hickory. They take, if you plant a hickory nut, it could take quite a long time before it produces nuts. Some people say it takes about 30, 40 years, and I think that's probably pretty accurate. And some people say it sometimes it's sooner than that. When you plant a hickory, you're doing it for someone else. But the wild crops, it's truly abundant, at least in my area. Are there any other trees that you would suggest or recommend for people to go looking for in their foraging efforts that give that nice return as a place to start and to learn more about this and gain some of the skills to encourage further development of their foraging habits? Oh, there's so many. I think the main thing is a lot of people, when they think of foraging, they think of like a wilderness. And I would encourage people to start with where they live. If they live in the suburbs, great. There's probably so much to get in the suburbs. There's crab apples, and you can be making like cider or jelly. There's so many crab apples planted in every neighborhood in most of this country. So like crab apples would be a really good one. Mulberries grow in almost every urban area in the country. And mulberries can be just, there's a lot of variation with them. Some of them, like the fruit will be like fairly bland and not very exciting. But sooner or later, if you keep tasting them, I always tell people when you're getting into wild foods or seedling trees is that it's kind of like people. And you can't just go meet one person and be like, oh, I just formed my opinion about the whole species of human. If you're going to go taste a mulberry, don't just taste one. you got to taste a whole bunch. And sooner or later, you're going to find one. It's just, wow, what is this? It's like delicious. And there's maybe two million berries. And so I had found this one mulberry tree. It's just on the side of the road outside of Ithaca. And I've been revisiting this tree every year for about 10 years, and it makes these berries that are jet black. They have a flavor that I've never experienced anywhere else. It's like a complex flavor of like tart and sweet, and it's so good. And this tree produces, it's a huge tree. It's probably 40 feet wide. Every single branch is covered with berries. Even the interior of the tree is just totally covered in berries, and they shake free. So you can put a sheet down on the ground and just shake a branch, and they just all rain down. And it bears fruit. It starts around the last week of June, and it bears fruit all the way to the end of September. You can visit the tree every day all summer and gather more fruit, and it is unbelievably good fruit. And it's just growing on the side of the road, and hardly anybody stops. So I think if you want to get into foraging, you really just want to start with what's around and start looking what's growing, what's already there, and uh, you don't have to go to with the Adirondacks or some big wilderness area to find things to forage for. It's everywhere. When you find trees like that are producing these beautiful fruits or these characteristics that you like, are you engaging in any kind of plant breeding or propagation of those in order to continue those lines within your nursery business or elsewhere? Yeah, and that's basically what my nursery is. I find trees that I love and I propagate them. Some of them I will propagate clonally. I'm like, this tree is like, this variety is so good. Let's keep it. And then some of them, I'm, what's further? It's genetics and we grow seeds out. Yeah, like I've found plum thickets growing along the stream that I'll gather plums from and I always save the seeds. And you know, I gather pounds of mulberry seed every year. So, like, part of my nursery, I sell plants and trees, 
but I also sell seeds and cuttings and I have a class that I teach or it's an online class and I send out seeds and cuttings to people. And it's all just from stuff that I find in my outings or stuff that I have planted on my farm. It's like everywhere I go, I'm finding stuff that I want to propagate. And I used to think if you're going to propagate something, it has to be like one in a million or, and it has to have like these exceptional qualities. Because when you start reading about stuff, they talk about the way people talk about apples, for example, they'll say one in 10,000 trees of seedlings is going to be good. And I just don't believe that. I think if you really start looking, you can find exceptional trees all over the place. And the problem is people aren't looking. They're just driving by. They're just driving down the road and nobody's stopping and looking at these trees. Or they even have them in their yard and they don't stop and taste or check it out. So. There's so many great trees to be propagating from in all directions, from wherever you are. If someone wants to learn more about propagation, you mentioned clonally and then growing out from seed. What are some of the techniques or skills that you feel are ideal for people to learn as a beginner? And what are some advanced skills for people who may have mastered some of the basics? It really depends on the species. So say cuttings, for example. Cuttings, if you're doing like willow or currant or elderberry, are very easy. You basically take a cutting that's dormant, shove it in the ground, maybe keep the weeds back, and you'll have a new plant. And then you take a cutting from like a blueberry, and good luck. You're going to really need to know what you're doing. So I don't know if there's like certain techniques that are easy as so much as there's certain species that are really easy. For example, like for cuttings, like I said, elderberry, willow, currant, Persithia. There's certain ones that are just like, like anybody could do it. Just the berry. You, you just really just shove a branch in the ground and you want to do it while there's no leaves on. That makes it very simple and stress-free. If you're getting into summertime cuttings, that's much more advanced. Summertime cuttings or softwood cuttings would be an advanced technique. And then even like dormant cuttings would be advanced if you're doing more difficult to root species that require things like bottom heat or mist systems. And then for seeds, there are certain seeds that are really easy to grow. And then there are certain seeds that are really difficult and take different tricks. So it's a hard question to answer without getting into like specifics of different species. I could definitely list like many species that are really easy to start with and why. And then the other thing I would say is like grafting is like a more advanced propagation. But it's also not that kind of bragging. It's just how it is. But the first time I grafted, I took 20 apple trees and I made the cuts and I put them together and 19 out of 20 took. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just watched a couple of YouTube videos. And then probably the easiest technique that anybody could do for any propagation is layering. You know, that's where you take a branch, you bend it down to the ground, put a weight on it like a stone or a pile of dirt and wait for it to root. That's definitely the easiest. And then later... Once it's formed roots, you cut it back, you cut it away from the mother plant and dig it up and pot it up or plant it or whatever you want to do. But there's like advanced layering techniques, but the simple one is pretty darn simple. As you say, the question that I asked is probably not the best one as the techniques are not the issue, but what species one might use. Would you go ahead and share your list of some easy species to start with and the techniques that go with them for people if they'd like to try their hand at this? Sure. I think one of the easiest things to do is, especially now, 
it's late winter and if you go around there's all this like rotten fruit clung to like crab apples and uh, ornamental pears in every town and city so if if you were to just go and you can gather with your hands but easier is you know you, you look weird like who cares right but i just go into towns and i do whatever i'm going to do sometimes i ask permission but people always stare at me. But anyways, I'll go up to a crab apple tree in like a parking lot of a shopping mall and I'll put a tarp down and I'll just shake the tree, a whole bunch of fruit is going to fall in the tarp and then whoosh, you just pull the tarp together and you can gather gallons and gallons of crab apples in no time if you shake them onto a tarp. And then you take all those mushy crab apples, you bring them home and you just have a little garden, just a little patch of dirt and spread that fruit out into the dirt, maybe rake it into the soil a little bit, cover it with the thin layer of mulch, and bam, you're going to have hundreds of little seedlings come up in the spring. That's like super fun, easy thing to do. And then you can take those crab apples, you can grow them out just as seedlings. Most crab apples come true from seed. So you'll have like a beautiful ornamental tree, a tree that's great for wildlife, or you can use them as rootstocks and graft named varieties onto them. So that's one easy thing you can do. You can do the same thing with ornamental pears, which are also planted all over the place. Mulberries is really easy. What you can do with mulberry is you can do two things. If you want to grow them from seed, you can gather the fruit the same way with the tarp. Though some trees, the fruit won't really shake out and you'll have to pick it. But it's nice if you can find a tree where the fruits just want to shake free. And then you can gather a lot. It's really if you're going to gather seeds and stuff, you might as well just get a bunch because it makes your life easier. You're just raking it into the soil. It's not like you have to plant each seed one by one. So with the mulberry, I'll gather a whole bunch. And then what you can do is you can mash up the fruit and you don't want to get some of the pulp out of the way. So what I do is I, I mash the fruit up. I put it in a bucket with a little bit of water and then I mash it up with a paint mixer. You could use just like a stick or your hands, but a paint mixer makes it go really fast. And you just blend it into this slurry and then add a whole bunch of water after you've blended it up and then pour the water off slowly. And what will happen is the fruit pulp will float away and the seeds will sink to the bottom of the bucket. You might have to do that several times. It's called decanting. So I hope this doesn't sound too complicated. But basically, you mash up the fruit, add water, pour off the water, which gets rid of some of the fruit. And then you take all those seeds from the bottom of the bucket, and you can either just plant them right away in the garden, or you can dry them, put them in a paper bag, and store them in like the cupboard, and then in the spring plant them. Because mulberries are ripe in the summer, and you might not want to start trees in the summer. It's a nice to have a full growing season. But the mulberry seeds is the same thing. You just If you have your mulberry seeds and they're dry, and then in the spring, you just broadcast them into the ground like grass seed. You just lightly rake them in. And then in about two, three weeks, when the soil warms up enough, they'll just pop up and you'll have just a bazillion mulberries. So those are like some of the easiest trees from seed. Some of the bigger seeds like chestnut, walnut, hickory, they're also pretty easy, but they have a lot of tricks because you really have to watch out for mold and rodents, which is like whole, like I could talk about both those things for way too long. And then cuttings can be really easy and fun too. I think I already mentioned uh, the currants and elderberries and willows. 
currants, willow, and elderberry are some of the things that I've grown and propagated just from cuttings, very much like you described. With my willow, I go out and I select a limb that's maybe at least as wide as my thumb, down to as wide as two thumbs, cut that, cut it into 14 to 18 inch lengths, and then just pound it into the ground like a stake. And then a couple of months later, I've got leaves on it, it's growing, and usually by the end of the first growing season, what was just ankle high after I drove it into the ground is now waist high, and is a really encouraging kind of thing to grow because of how they just grow so easily, it seems. Yeah, it makes you feel good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it can definitely make you feel good. If people get really into propagation, like, it will become insane. Like, like I grow all these thousands of plants because I'm trying to pay our mortgage with plants, so you need a lot. So I'll actually manage a lot of my plants for cuttings, and I'll just coppice them every year. I have elderberries that I coppice every year and willows that I coppice, and they just, the response is just this enormous vegetative response. There's way less flowering, but they'll still flower and fruit, but you'll get these straight, vigorous shoots, and uh, you know, you'll get like literally 10 times more cuttings than you would get if you just took little snips here and there. It's fun when you start getting into it and seeing like, well, what's possible? How many plants can I grow in this little space? And how many cuttings can I produce? Because I sell cuttings. So, and I'm just, my nursery's on three quarters of an acre. So it's like the more cuttings I can grow, the better. And so I have plants that I manage for cuttings. I have apple trees that are managed as cyanwood trees and they're cut back really hard. So you get that vegetative response. I really appreciate this conversation, Akiva, because propagation to this level and degree is something that I've never explored before or realized how much I've been doing in my own work from having just collected tomato seeds in order to continue that year after year because there were certain things that I liked or pounding those willow stakes into the ground to build some natural kind of hedgerow and fencing or like my elderberry because I can never seem to harvest them before the deer get to them. So making sure there's enough for both of us and just that there are all these ways that we can start this without necessarily being on a lot of land or having to have a lot of formal training, that there are ways that we can just get started and then allow that to encourage us further in the work that we're doing. Yeah, there's two things I want to say to that. Like the first is propagation. It's actually, it's like kind of a weird word. It's like a very bulky, unattractive word, I think. But it's actually like such a beautiful concept because you are in, if you want to be in a relationship with plants, when you start propagating them, you're really in relationship with them. So there's this hickory tree that I freaking love that grows down the road. It's got to be 200 years. So every fall, when it has a crop, it's like you take so much and you look at this tree and you want to say thank you. And you can say thank you and like maybe the tree hears you or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. Like maybe it does. But what it really wants, it's producing all those seeds because it's trying to create offspring. and so. You're really in relationship when you take from this tree and then you actually get babies planted out for it. That's like, now you've really done something for it that's like real. And that's why I love propagation because you're really like, you're working with the plant. They want to grow just as much as you want them to grow. Probably, they probably want it way more than you do. And so it's funny, you're trying to figure out what do they need? What do they want? They want it. You just have to create the conditions for it. And then the other thing you talked about learning propagation and you don't need like fancy formal education and i think that's really important so i learned everything about propagation just from youtube videos and reading articles online and experimenting 
And I meet people who come to my nursery every year who say, I want to start a nursery. This is so beautiful. You just get to stay home and grow plants. And they're like, I want to do that. And not that long ago, this woman came out, this young woman, and she was telling me how this was like her dream. She was like, I wish I could do this. And I was like, you can. And she said, no, I have $200,000 in student loans. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, she studied horticulture. And so she learned propagation and stuff. But, like, anyways, like, I don't think the propagation she learned in the university is, like, any different. But it's probably really different than what I'm doing. But I don't think it's any more effective. So, I don't know. I think the whole idea of, like, formal education, paying a lot of money for education kind of freaks me out when people are accruing debt and there's all this free information available. It's if you want to learn something, there's no excuse anymore. Now that we have this internet thing. Thank you for those two thoughts and everything else that you've shared with us today, Akiva. But before we draw this interview to a close, is there anything else that you would like to leave as a gift for the listeners before we end our interview together? Yes. I would just like to say, and it's really not about plants or trees or anything, but I just want people to know that the universe is a really mysterious place. And whatever you think, there's probably a lot more going on. And so if you get all caught up with this is the way life should be, this is the way people should act, whatever, it's okay to let all that go. Let all these like fantasies of the way you think your life should be, just let it all go and see what actually lies in front of you. And the universe is right here, is right there for you, for me, for everybody. It's wide open. So that would be the last thing I'd like. Well, thank you for that and everything else in our conversation today. I really appreciate that you took the time to sit down and talk with us and share your story. So thank you for joining me. Sure. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. And that was Akiva Silver. You can find his farm and work at twisted-tree.net, and you can find his book, Trees of Power, at chelseagreen.com. You'll find links to those and many of the resources Akiva mentioned, such as Empire Chestnut Company, and the resources section of the show notes. His connection to Earth that he developed through foraging and tracking. His experience shows that we can use these skills as a way to foster and deepen that connection. I feel that doing this is important because we need to love something in order to care for it. And if we can have that at a younger age, it can lead to a lifetime of meaningful action on our part to take responsibility for our choices and the impacts that we have on Earth, other people, and our ability to return the surplus. Foraging is one of the best skills for this that we can learn and also share with others, especially children. Time and time again, I see it with my own kids, as my daughter seeks out violets and my son the brambles, to harvest flowers and berries from the yard or when we go for a hike. It's instilled a curiosity in them to wonder what this mushroom is and whether or not they can eat it, to borrow my camera to take a picture so we can find out more about that little bush we've never seen before. I started talking with them about plants and what they can harvest when they were preschool age, and I see their interest continue now as they prepare for their preteen years. Anyone can benefit from learning to forage at any age. As a hobby, it's simple and low cost that can reap incredible rewards. It's worth your time to do, even if it's only for a few hours on a couple of weekends a year. If you'd like to learn more about foraging, the best person working in our broader region of the United States and writing about their experiences is Sam Thayer. As Akiva mentioned, Sam wrote the foreword to Trees of Power, and he's also appeared on the Permaculture Podcast before. His books are just incredible, and take you through many of the different ways you can make use of a wide selection of plants beyond just the edible parts. 
Even if you don't live in areas where the particular plants, Sam details grow, his thoughts on forging ethics and what to consider while walking the land make each book worth much more than the cover price. You can find Sam Thayer at foragersharvest.com, and I'll include links to his site and our previous interview in the show notes. Along the way on this or any of your journeys, if I can ever help, please let me know. Until then, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by foraging, propagating plants, and taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. The Permaculture Podcast is a production of Permaneo Group. Find out more about the Permaculture Podcast, including the extensive archives, by visiting our website, thepermaculturepodcast.com. Learn more about Permaneo Group and other projects at permaneogroup.com.